I wonder what comes to your mind when you think of these names I'm about to list. (coughs) President Joe Biden. Hitler. Queen Elizabeth. President Putin. T.D. Jakes. Joel Osteen, maybe. What comes to your mind? What type of leaders do they represent? Today, I want us to answer a few questions. What should we look for in a leader? How should we be praying for our leaders? How should leaders, members and Christians conduct? How should we conduct ourselves? How should a church function under godly leadership? And so on your outline, you see two points the gift of servanthood and the character of servanthood. Let's read again those words in Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a love of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The gift of servanthood. See, an elder serves as a synonym for a pastor. This epistle gives us at least three descriptions of an elder. An elder is first and foremost a servant of God. We see there in Titus 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It reads... And makes clear that Paul was a servant of God and trusted with the service of preaching. An elder is an overseer, a bishop of some sort. Verse 7 tells us that for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. The word overseer is interchangeable with elder. Not as one that lords over God's people, but an under-shepherd. One who oversees God's sheep to care for the church of God, as we see in Acts 20, 28. What is even more crucial to understand is that an elder is a fellow sheep, a fellow sheep of God, leading other sheep to follow the true shepherd, Christ himself. An elder is a steward, as we read in verse 7 again. Someone is accountable to God. Verse 7 says, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. A steward must make proper use of the gifts God has given. God puts elders in a position of responsibility for his people, not in the sense of taking responsibility for all their actions, but being accountable for how they are cared for. In word, in deed, in action. 
What are the words of an elder? It should be to preach God's word to the church. What are the thoughts towards the church of an elder? One that seeks to grow believers to know the Lord more and to follow him. The conduct of an elder, both privately and openly towards the church, must be one of reverence to honour the Lord and to seek for others to know him even the more. Why should we have elders, we say? Well, I want, us to draw, I draw, I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 14, verse 23 to 20, 21 to 23. Acts chapter 14, verse 21 to 23. Speaking of Paul and Barnabas, and it reads, When they had preached the gospel to that city, Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Elders are for the disciples of Jesus. Elders must preach the gospel and Christ's gospel alone. But they preached the gospel to Christ's very own people. Elders are needed to facilitate the development, encouragement, and the growth of disciples through administering solid gospel food to strengthen the faith of God's people and believers. Elders appoint other elders as we see with Paul and Barnabas. Even as the church and other believers recognise and attest to the character and giftings in a brother's life. Notice also the use of elders in its plural sense in every church as opposed to one elder. The Bible encourages a plurality of elders. It's important. What is the advantage to this? It means there's accountability. That the members of the church must hold elders accountable so that we do what is biblical and honouring to the Lord. The Bible encourages more than one elder so that there's a mutual relationship to encourage, to strengthen, to challenge, and if needed, to rebuke one another. Well, another advantage is that we bear one another's burdens, that we sharpen one another in Christ. It's good for counsel and wisdom. Where there are two, three, four heads together, it's better than one, isn't it? To impact the body of Christ. And we know that church leadership is not a dictatorship, rather, it's a community, it's a family. The plurality of elders means decisions are given due diligence and the responsibility is shared. But also it utilises the gifts that God has deposited within the church. So the church is built up 
And so as we return to our main text, we read verse 5 in Titus 1 again. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders are a gift from God to the church to put work into order. Order is important in the world God has created. God was orderly in his creation. The sun, the moon, the stars as we know it were formed in, this per- in the way God has per- created it so perfectly that they orbit and turn and move in such an orderly fashion. There are seasons that follow one another. Imagine if we had season, in, um, we had summer in between autumn and winter. How weird would that be? It'd throw, throw us all off, wouldn't it? God has ordered things. The land, the sea, and the sky have their boundaries, the Bible says. When those boundaries are blurred, we see the chaos that ensues. God created Adam and then formed Eve from Adam's rib, giving Adam the family responsibility, giving to Eve, giving Eve to him as the Esau helpmate, helpmate, a perfect fit for him. Made different from him, but yet the same. Both lovely, made in the image of God. Same worth. Our bodies made such great organisation. Think of our digestive system. When that's not working as it should, it's chaos. The circulation of the blood, the regulation of breathing, our blood pressure. The sweats, glands, cell replication, all in order. God is orderly within his own persons. We may not be fully, we can't comprehend fully the Trinity, but God has ordered all things. And even within the three persons of the Trinity, we see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three, yet one. Three distinct persons. The Father sends his begotten Son and upon his accomplished work on the cross and resurrection gives all true believers the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and makes those who are spiritually dead now spiritually alive so that we can repent from our sins and turn to Jesus, who is the way to the Father. What perfect order. <clears throat> and Paul reminds us in Titus 1.3 that God is orderly in his timing. Read with me verse 3. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time, at the proper time, manifested in his word. See, the promise from before time, the gospel revealed at God's ordained time, and a hope for all time. In the process of preaching the gospel, 
We know that Paul visited Crete with Titus on one of his missionary trips. And these Cretans may have already heard the gospel, as we know this from Acts chapter 2.11, that Cretans were present on the day of Pentecost, when believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says they too were glorifying and proclaiming the mighty works of God. Churches are not built overnight. Crete, we know, is a long and narrow island spanning about 160 miles. It's roughly about 35 miles across its widest point. And in the first century, travellers would sail from the Greek mainland to the island, roughly about one to two days. The Bible says in Acts 27 that Paul experienced Shipwreck on the way to Crete and passing through. A famous classical poet, Homer, spoke of Crete, spoke of Crete of the hundred cities. And we're not sure if Crete had hundred cities in that time, but certainly there was about 20 towns administered by their own magistrates. So possibly it would be up to 20 churches in Crete at the time Paul is writing. And Paul is saying that there must be elders in every town. And so the letter of Titus gives us a glimpse of life in Crete during the first century. The churches in Crete lacked leadership and therefore direction. They lacked submission to authorities, poor moral standards, false teachers had come in their midst. And had sown bad seeds. And ungodliness was rife in the life of the church. But not just in the church. In their homes. In their community. In the world at large. There was a lot of work to be done in Crete. And so that's why Paul writes in Titus 1, 5... This is why I left you in Crete, that you may put into order what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Whatever gospel work had taken place prior to this in Crete, there was still needed a continual effort and a continual striving for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. The work needed to continue. And so Paul tells Titus two things. Bring into order. Appoint elders in every town. Paul recognised that the ordering of the churches was vital to the Christians of that time, but all times afterwards. And so elders are needed. They are needed to be appointed. Paul, as noted in our first sermon, was passing on the baton to Titus. He's saying, now you run this race. And so the work of God in the body of Christ continues as the church is equipped and made ready and fit for good works. His number one instruction and direction to Titus is to appoint elders in every town. Every one of those churches needed leadership and so leadership within the local church is a key element 
of an orderly church. It is a gift from God. Our soul. Well, Titus has been tasked with finding and appointing multiple leaders. Our church here in Bexley Heath had to wait a few years to appoint our dear pastor to shepherd God's work. Churches up and down this land, it's, it's sort of representative of that right now, to find leaders that will serve God's people. And so you can imagine the challenge that Titus had to appoint elders in every town in Crete. But we are reminded that the Lord builds his church. That the Lord builds his, builds his church through the means and gifts that he has entrusted in the church. Ephesians 4 reminds us of this, that he himself, Christ, gave some to be apostles, some evangelists, some teachers, some elders to, for the building up, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry. It's a gift. What is the function of elders? What do they do? Or simply put, an elder must shepherd and love God's people. To shepherd and love God's people. See, I recently saw a clip of some sheep going round in a circle for 12 days and 12 nights in China. You can Google it later. They kept going round and round and round and round and round all day, all night. Why? They had no purpose. They had no course. They had no leadership. Elders are given by God and appointed by God's people to lovingly serve God's people and to lead God's sheep. That's the biblical pattern that we have. Elders should shepherd the church primarily through the preaching of God's word, by giving instruction in sound doctrine. And so Paul reminds Titus of two vital functions. When we read verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. See, many years, many seasons had passed in the life of Paul to this point. He'd experienced beatings, shipwreck, imprisonment, stoning. And now, as he approached the end of his ministry, he feels this sense and weight of responsibility towards those he himself has discipled. Titus. Titus, being a disciple of his, must now carry on this work. Must continue the work in Crete. If you have ever seen a shepherd depicted in a film or, pic- or a movie, you will notice, or maybe even in a picture for the youth, you will notice two things, two instruments that they have. A rod and a staff. They have a rod and a staff. Indeed, you will notice, if you've read Psalm 23, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
something we've been discussing with the youth of late. See, the staff is long, it's thin, it has a hook or crook on its end. The rod is relatively short, a heavy like club like device, almost like a small baseball bat. The staff is to guide and to lead. That's what the shepherd does, to lead the sheep he's caring for. But the rod is to protect and to fight off unwanted animals and disturbances. And so this is how an elder should function as an under-shepherd to God. One voice to love God's sheep and instruct the body of Christ through diligent and faithful teaching of the Bible. And another voice to rebuke whatever falsehoods may attack the unity and derail the fellowship of the sheep and their walk with the Lord. See, having elders overseeing the work of God in a local church has some implications. I'll give you six. Elders must encourage others by sound doctrine. They must refute those who oppose it. How? By holding firmly to the trustworthy message. That is far more than the gift of teaching. To hold firmly to the word of God. To live it out. That's what's important. The real gift is the changed life that an elder and any Christian lives out. That's the gift to the church. A changed life. When lives are changed, when the pastor and the elders' lives are changed, it leads to growth within the community and the body of Christ. Why? Because we are there to sharpen one another, to grow one another. Elders, and indeed any leader, are first and foremost a disciple of the gospel of Christ. To live it out, to love others by the gospel and making other disciples who follow Christ and are shaped by that gospel. Elders are needed in the gathering of the local body of Christ. It is virtually impossible for a church to function without leadership. The gathering and the various services would soon reveal where there is a lack of leadership and lack of order. It's a gift to the church. The notes and marks of a true church to physically gather together means that elders can hold you to account. Online church doesn't meet this standard. If you can be present in person in church, rather than being at home by yourself, if it's possible, Gathered worship is not a substitute for any other worship, for for staying at home. If you have an opportunity to be with God's people, sometimes sickness and other things does not allow. But you cannot be accountable at home to anyone. Leadership and having elders is important for membership. 
elders can only be truly responsible for the flock as are numbered with them. That is one of the reasons membership in a local church is important. When Titus was to appoint elders in each church, in each town, in Crete, they were to care for the well-being of those committed to those churches. And so whilst Christian duty is that we owe nothing but love, even if there is a recognition that the spiritual and physical well-being of everyone in a local church is the concern of the leaders and others, other believers alike, elders can only honestly be accountable and only be accountable to God for those who are numbered with them, who are members of the local body of Christ. And so likewise, members can only hold elders to account and, and hold and have responsibility to hold them to account for their words, for their action and deeds as members of that body. It's so important. Elders must be encouraged to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that they're able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Why? To this end, so that we need to pray that our elders, our pastors, that they increase in the knowledge of the Lord, that they increase in the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because it's of benefit to the local body of Christ. We must hold elders to account what is being preached and taught. Raise useful questions after service, Bible studies at other times about the preaching, about the teaching. Be an expository listener, one who's hearing the word and goes back home and studies the word as a Berean and comes back and say, I'm not sure about what you said there. Or could you help me? I need to know this a little bit more for the growth of the church. But also praying that leaders live in line with what they teach. Raising concerns in the right way. In a manner that you can approach your leaders and say, I'm not sure about that. Can we have a chat about that? See, repentance is the goal for every rebuking of those who contradict sound doctrine. It's never a case if an elder comes to you and says, I'm sister, bro, I don't think you should be doing it. The rebuke should always be one of love to draw you back to the Father, to draw you back to know the Lord more. That is sound doctrine. But there's something extraordinary in Paul's directive to Titus. And this is our second point and final point for this morning. The character of servitude. See, of high, high importance in Paul's instruction to Titus was to appoint elders in each town with a particular character. And so as we read again, verse 5 to 8 of our main text, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town 
as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright and holy and disciplined. The key sentence I would like us to focus here is verse five and verse six and seven initially. It says the elder or overseer must be above reproach. Character is strongly indicated as the barometer to which an elder is appointed. Not his skills, not his status, not his education, but the character. The character of a leader is hugely important. And so we see the number of verses dedicated to the character of this elder. The ability and gift to teach God's word, yes, are paramount. Yes, they are important. But without godly character, such giftings can be detrimental. Detrimental to the person themselves, but also to the people in which they are teaching and seeking to grow. What does it mean to be above reproach? MacArthur rightly states this. He says that it does not mean that the person is without sin and certainly does not refer to sinless perfection, but it refers to a personal life that is beyond legitimate accusation and public scandal. Paul unpacks what it means in the verses we have just read. He splits the character of an elder into two. Firstly, what an elder should be, and secondly, what an elder should not be. And so we look first at what an elder should be, should love and care for his wife. He should be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man, faithful to his wife, inwardly and outwardly. A single man is not necessarily disqualified, but must demonstrate purity inwardly and outwardly, inwardly and externally. Paul, we know, was never married, but he himself said, I discipline my body. I discipline my body and keep it Keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. An elder should love and care for his children. If God chooses to bless him and his wife with children. His children should be faithful, not open to bodily pleasures. That's what debauchery means. His children, mainly those who are under his authority, those who are under his roof, roof, must obey his guidance, must obey his instruction. That is true submission. They are to be believers in the sense that they are faithful to what is being taught in their homes. Not necessarily believers in Christ, but what is being taught whilst you're under this roof in the home. Children must be faithful 
and submitted to that. The family really is the training ground. It's the training ground and the testing ground for anyone who is entrusted to lead God's people in a local church. One's ability to love, to care, to protect and to give instruction as stewards of his home greatly impacts the qualification to be a steward of God's people. And so we jump to verse 8 to see the character he should have. Six positive virtues. He should be hospitable, a love of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. So firstly, an elder should be able to lead his home or else how would he be expected to lead the church? He must be a disciplined follower of Christ, love God and love God's people. Paul's primary concern is not looking for the most skilled or the best orator to lead the church, but those with godly character. (coughs) So secondly, what an elder should not be or do. Five negative characteristics. He must not be arrogant. He must not be full of pride. He must not be quick-tempered or or a drunkard. A drunk pastor is is quite dangerous in terms of revealing a lot of things they shouldn't be revealing. (laughs) And so he shouldn't be drunkard because also he must have the right faculties to bring God's word to his people. He must not consume alcohol to the level that dulls his mind or subdues inhibition. Any drug, in fact, must be taken into consideration here. That's not necessarily prescribed. An elder should not be violent. This includes being slow to anger, not cutting people with his words, and he must be peaceable as much as is possible on his part. He must not be greedy for gain. How many of us have been under previous pastors that really are salesmen? Salesmen extorting money for gain and for perceived success. It's quite shameful. True leaders are servants. True leaders only want Jesus to be seen. So what are we to take from knowing these characteristics? Why is Paul given this instruction to Titus? What should we take as people that are here today? Or well, seven quick things. Number one, the natural ability, intelligence, status or education are not the criteria for appointing elders. It's a godly life. One is seeking to follow Christ. One is seeking to die, as, as the Bible says, that we die for the brothers as Christ has died for us. Being a slave of Christ. Number two, these characteristics that Paul lists is simply a virtue that all Christians All Christians should be pursuing. It's not just for the elder. Elders are appointed sheep. They are also following Christ. 
Let's not misconstrue that. We are all to be under the Lordship of Christ, to know him, to serve him, to live for him. And so if the Lord has given you a gift to teach, if you sense this gift, submit that gift to him. Submit that gift to God and his word. Seek to grow in holiness, in self-control, in discipline and in hospitality. See, if the Lord would have you lead within the church context, then don't necessarily seek the the position of leadership. Rather, seek first that I may know him, that I may know Christ crucified. Seek that godly life. That's the primary focus. Am I growing to be more like Christ? How can I serve others well? Number three, you may be struggling in your walk in Christ or with Christ, young and old. You, are, you may be far away and you feel like I'm far away from these Christian virtues that Paul has mentioned. I feel disqualified already. I feel I don't match up to this. You may even be doubting your salvation. The Bible says we have these treasures in jars of clay. It's not us. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. Your pastor or elder is not the perfect specimen of a Christian. He's not God. He's simply an imitator of the original. Let's not lose focus. He's an imitator of the original. He needs Christ the same way you need Christ. And that's why we all have this treasure in jars of clay. This treasure of Christ is all our hope of glory. No one is without sin. No one knows it all. We must all repent of any sin and focus on what is true. That Christ Jesus came to die for sinners. And that the whole body of Christ is who he has died for. Number four. The character of any leader within the church and not just elders, will impact the church. It will impact the church. Character traits will come out in preaching, will come out in relationships. It impacts the church. And so pray for leaders within the church. Pray for pastors. Pray for elders. Pray for those in various different ministries within the church. Number five, Luke 1, 17 describes what Judas was. Luke 1, 17 says this, that he was numbered, numbered among the disciples and was allotted his share in their ministry. But we see the destruction of Judas thereof. A reminder that not everyone in ministry or present in the church should depend on their ministry or their gifting. Do not depend on that. Depend on that you know Christ, that you are following Christ, that your life is surrendered to him, that you are growing in him, that yet I am a sinner, but he has saved me, he has rescued me, and that I am pursuing him as he has pursued me. He's made a home in me already. I must run to his sanctuary and make a home there and truly rest 
in his presence, to know him and him crucified. We must all examine our walk with the Lord. Men, we need to help to lead our homes. We must lead our homes the way God wants us to. If we're being honest, we struggle as men, and many of us, to do this. It's such a high calling, but it's because we depend too much on ourselves. We must lead our home. We must repent where we are not leading our home as we should. We are to be honest about our struggles. We are to strive to present our homes before the Lord. Present the gospel. Present the good news. Present day and night. Make ourselves men and valor. Men of valor, men of prayer. Seeks to know the Lord so that we can lead our homes. We sometimes strive for legitimate things, don't we? We seek to provide for our families. But the number one thing that we can give to them, the legacy that we can leave behind, is that we knew Christ, that we know Christ. And so we hand the baton to them as well when we're no longer around. Saying that this is the only thing that can keep you in rain and sunshine. This is the only thing that can save. This is the only person that saves and redeems. Christ and Christ alone. We must be humble, servant-like leadership. Priests within our homes. Preachers in our homes. Prophets in our homes. How? By proclaiming the truth of God. Proclaiming the truth of God. When we're tired. When we're weary. Constantly. Because that's the true food that sustains. Wives. Pray that your husband... They know the Lord. Children, pray that your dad may know and serve the Lord. That he would be above reproach. He does not have to be an elder. But in his home, in his character, in his walk with the Lord. Pray that he strives to lead his home well. That he strives to know the Lord. Why? Because it's of benefit to you, it's a benefit to the home, it's a benefit to the church, it's a benefit to society, it's a benefit to our workplaces. All believers are called to teach others within God given roles and contexts. And so, yes, the Bible makes clear that women are not called to pastor churches but the bible makes it clear that god has ordained men to be overseers but paul gives us a context here in chapter two which we'll get to in a few months time it gives us clarity where men women young and old are to teach one another in the church and the home 
So just because the Lord's order does not call for female elders, does not mean that you shouldn't be a servant of God. That you shouldn't be pursuing the law. That you shouldn't be upright and hospitable, a lover of good. That you shouldn't be self-controlled, holy, a disciplined follower of Christ. Titus 2, 3 verse 5 instructs women to teach what is good. And to train other women that the word of God may not be reviled. We'll unpack this another time. For the Lord has given gifts within the body. How are we striving to use them for God's glory? How are we striving to use them to build up the church? How are we striving in our homes to build up one another? Pray for leadership beyond the church. We started off with those names, didn't we? What comes to mind When you think of certain leaders, we must pray for those that are outside of church. Those leaders in our nation, the Bible says, that rage against the Lord. Pray that they may turn and serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in Christ with trembling. Psalm 2.11. And to this end, remember that elders are a gift from God to the ordering of the local body of Christ, to ensure growth in godliness. That's the focus. That's why Paul writes to Titus. For when the grace of God appeared, he saved us. When the loving kindness and the goodness of God, he saved us. What from? From ungodliness. That we may strive and be trained to grow in godliness. That's the gift to the church. Growing or seeking to grow in godliness is an hopeless aim outside of the body of Christ. (coughs) If we do not turn away from our sins and follow Jesus and believe in Jesus, believe on the name of Jesus and be saved. The orderly church is the gift the Father gives And the gift is Jesus. And he's soon to come. He's soon to come. The coming king. Are we to be the sanctified bride? Or are we to be the ungodly bride? We must seek and strive to be sanctified by God's word. So that when Jesus returns, the bridegroom, oh, what joy it will be. That day when we see our Lord Jesus, then we can say, I wasn't perfect, but you worked in me both to will and to do for your good pleasure. That you stirred up my life to know you, to serve you. And I did what you called me to do, to be faithful, to honour you. I want to ask you a question this morning. Are you part of the body of Christ? Are you part of the body? I'm not just talking about the local church, but are you in Christ? 
Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he Lord over your life? Do you know his salvation? Are you trusting in him today? If you're not, turn away from sin. Turn to him. Turn to him. I'm not talking about Jesus is going to order your life. Everything is going to be perfect. But I'm saying Jesus will transform your life. Jesus would put what is chaotic in your life, which is the sin that easily ensnares, and he will break you free from those sins. He will set your feet on solid ground that you will begin to grow, that you will begin to grow to know your maker, the one that has come to serve you, to live for you, to die on the cross of Calvary. He didn't just stay there. He lived a life that you could never live. All the goodness that we feel that we can live. Jesus, he himself, is goodness. And when that goodness appeared, he saved us. He rescued us. Will you miss the ark? The ark is coming. Jesus himself. In the days of old, we know about Noah. There's another ark that's coming. Do not miss that boat. Do not miss the opportunity to be with the Lord forever. It's a great opportunity for eternity. What seems like gain now is nothing gain in the life to come. Seek the Lord now that you may gain eternity. To know Christ is eternal life. Do not seek anything else but Christ and him crucified. Turn to the Lord. He knows the number of hair on your head. He knows who you are. He knows your weaknesses. Do not turn away from him. Saints, are you growing in knowing the truth? Are you growing in knowing the truth that accords to godliness? Are you changed by the word and the studies that you are getting? Are you changed by the word of God that you're reading? If you're not examining your life, where are you in the faith? Are you with Christ or are you outside of Christ? You cannot sit on the wall. We must all give an account of how we have lived our lives, what we have done in the body, what we have said. The Lord is coming. How do we respond to his word delivered to us? Examine your life. And look to Jesus who has redeemed you and calls you to grow together in Christ, our head. Amen.